0: Most people recognize now that um, we are in a crisis state in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be extremely difficult to get to 1.5 degrees um, by even 2100. And so we need to be doing everything we possibly can, whether it's transportation, electricity, um, how we eat. I think we'll come on and talk a little bit about that um, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, our footprint. And so we need to do it urgently um, and um, we need to you know, double, triple, quadruple our efforts in this in a very short period of time otherwise um, our, our focus is going to need to be on resiliency building seawalls and protecting our coastal cities from flooding which is going to happen uh, more frequently. It already is happening more frequently. Yeah. currency. Oh, you
1: can it you What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. Or if it is your first time uh, tuning in, thank you very much for checking out the show. I appreciate it. Uh, this is Pat McCauley, as always. This week's episode, uh, I'm fired up to share because I think there's a lot of tangible takeaways that, uh, we as individuals, um, can apply to our day-to-day life to, uh, reduce our carbon footprint and, uh, hopefully have a, uh, more positive impact, uh, on the world as a whole. Um, so this week's episode is with Dan Goldman. Uh, Dan is Boston based. Uh, he is, An amazing athlete, um, marathoner and triathlete, um, but is also a clean energy entrepreneur and has been in the energy space uh, his entire career. Um, And he is currently the co-founder and managing director of Clean Energy Ventures, which is a hundred million dollar early stage uh, clean energy venture group here in Boston. Um, And they're doing all kinds of amazing, super positive things in the space. Um, So we talk about How Dan got into the energy space, uh, his many world travels, um, his time living in uh, Singapore and London um, and other places. Um, What the term clean energy uh, actually means, how he defines it. Um, I know it's kind of like a buzzword. So I was kind of curious like uh, his definition of it. Uh, The new innovations going on um, in the space. Uh, The potential integration of electric cars with your home. I thought this was super cool. The idea that you can like, take your Tesla that's parked in the garage and use the the battery to um, power your home. Uh, So hopefully that's something that uh, is going to become common in the near future. Um, The bottlenecks to widespread adoption of clean energy technologies. The impact the current president uh, has had on the space, the power our food choices have on combating the climate crisis, um, the other steps that we can take uh, outside of our diet to uh, reduce our carbon footprint. And then we talk all about his athletic pursuits, how he went from literally not really running uh, to becoming an Ironman in just about six years. Um, how he then qualified for uh, the half Ironman World Championships, uh, that's uh, 70.3 Ironman, Uh, what he recommends for people starting out that want to get into triathlons um, or marathons and things like that, Um, and also uh, what he looks for in an entrepreneur when investing. Uh, So for the entrepreneurs listening, um, uh, that was a cool one. I did want to say... I didn't realize it until I was editing the the episode, uh, that there's like a little buzz in the background. Uh, It's happened to me once before, and I just didn't pick it up when I was testing the mic. Uh, So bear with me on that. It might be a little annoying. Um, And also, uh, Dan was was getting over a cold, uh, so forgive uh, um, any coughs, or um, he wasn't, wasn't at 100%, so uh, forgive uh, some of the audio <laughs> all around here. Um, but yeah, Dan's an incredible guy. He's an absolute beast, uh, both as an athlete and an entrepreneur. And um, yeah, I hope you guys learn a bunch from this one. So without further ado, the one and only Dan Goldman.
0: Times are
1: related it is your currency. All right, I got Dan Goldman. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it feels like, for me, it feels like it's noon already. <laughs> me <laughs> because too. <laughs> I, because I don't generally get up that early. But we, uh, for those listening, we just did a little over nine.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: A little over nine from Milk Street in Boston out to Castle Island. Castle Island. A couple loops around Cap- Castle Island and Southie and, uh, and back in your training for Boston.
0: Yes, I am. You kept up the pace, uh, pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty good pace <laughs> for would, was this sur- morning. I, I was, was a little sore.
1: <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, you did. So you're three, four weeks out.
0: Uh, How like many? Seven. Seven weeks. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but you're already up to. You said you did 18 this past. 18. Yeah. Past week and now, is this the peak? And you start tapering from here, or still no, a, couple, a couple, couple more weeks? A
0: couple more weeks of 2022. 20, yeah, um, maybe a couple twenties and a twenty-two, and then, and then I'll kind of ramp it down in uh, in early April. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and twenty-two is the max. Yeah, that'll be yeah. as far as I go. Yeah, because yeah. I think like most the <coughs> average runners, rarely twenty is probably their max when right. training, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot that I've seen don't even they'll do eighteen, something like that. And right.
0: Yeah. I like to get the confidence of <coughs> being able to get to. 22, 23. And no, I only have three or four more miles to go to get to the finish line. And I can just do that on, you know, endorphins and adrenaline, Yeah, yeah. Uh, but feel good, like getting to 22 and being able to keep running.
1: Yeah. And you, so you qualified for Boston earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yes, I did. um, So Boston,
1: Boston wasn't really in the plan though, right? It was just like, if you happen to qualify, you'll do it. Exactly. I think, yeah.
0: yeah. I I've, I've wanted to qualify for a while, but I, I, you know, I didn't always work it into my schedule. But I, I did this thing called the Last Chance Marathon, which is also called Charles River, which is a 2.6 mile loop around the Charles. and You do it 10 times. And so, so it's a little monotonous, but it's also incredibly flat and lots of fueling stations and everything. So it's, it makes it really easy. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, over 50% of the entrants qualify for Boston. So Wow, yeah. And it's the day before um, registration opens. So you can do a lot of things, you know, over the summer, like triathlon or bike racing, and then spend eight, eight or ten weeks just training for that on September 8th. And, yeah. you know, kind of maximize your summer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I yeah. want to get back into that. But, but before we get back into <coughs> marathons and tries and all that, um, I would like to kind of get a little a little more extensive background i know so for those listening um i had your wife diana on who was one of like i want to say the first 20 or 30 episodes i did um who runs beantown kitchen here in boston um and so i know like the story posts meeting diana uh but i'd love to get like pre that and then uh how kind of those two worlds collided and and go from there so you can take it back as far as uh as far as you'd like
0: Okay. Well, I'll talk about the eat green part first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> um, beautiful. So, no, I grew up like normal American diet. And um, about, now, maybe 12 years ago, I stopped eating all red meat. Um, and so, you know, pork and, and beef. I, I didn't cut out chicken or fish, but I did reduce my consumption of them.
1: And what was, the, <laughs> what was like the mindset in doing that just kind of like... What people started becoming aware of with, with red and processed meats? Yeah, I just so felt I like
0: right. nutrition-wise it was important. I have high cholesterol, so I really wanted to reduce my cholesterol, reduce my fat intake. And it was also around the time I was starting to be like more active in in racing. So um, I felt like the nutrition part of it was tied into also um, particularly bike racing, um, getting trying to get more fit. Um, but then... You know, like, like Diana probably described, um, you know, six years ago, um, overnight, she, she went plant-based um, after watching some, you know, really compelling documentaries about um, factory farming and, um, and what we do to animals. And so when she did that, she said to me, look, I, you know, this is the direction I'm going. I was like, I'm totally with you. I can do this. Um, I have no problem cutting out um meat dairy uh everything else you know that I was still eating and so really we went down that journey together me a couple weeks after she she started yeah it's Um, always
1: it's always a female first in my in my experience they're just more open and I'm sure you as somebody who is at the time competing right had all the questions that most athletes have right
0: yeah, and the beauty of doing this with Diana is that she did, you know, massive amounts of research, mm-hmm. and um, you know, comes from a nutritional background, a nutritional training. So I, I totally, one hundred percent trusted everything she told me, and um, and of course it turned out to be true, and yeah. um, and that that was a great way for me to come to a plant based diet, one that was more science based. So I was really lucky to have her lead the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. So six years ago ish yep um, you sort of started the the transition and what has sort of I mean what's <coughs> what's happened since what's changed since if anything um,
0: yeah I, I mean I feel a lot better um, I really have not been injured in my training and competing at all um, and um, I think I'm performing a lot better so you know I think all the the signs, all the directions, uh, you know, the signposts are that it's been very positive for my body. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, um, and I think it's been positive for the, hopefully for the planet and for the animals too.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So you have also lived in many different parts of the world. Yeah. So can we take, take it back to sort of like the progression of where originally from to, I know you spent time in Asia and London, I think, and and now here, if you yep,
0: sure, yeah. So, um, grew up outside Princeton, New Jersey. Um, spent most of my childhood years in Princeton. Um, I was a little bit of a rink rat growing up and um, played ice hockey. I was a goaltender, mm-hmm. um, so I was never like really an endurance athlete. In fact, I was quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, and then Diana and I met at, at Cornell, um, where she studied nutrition. I studied um, agricultural economics, like undergraduate business degree, and economics. Um, and then we decided after we graduated uh, that I was going to go do a master's degree at the London School of Economics. Mm-hmm. And because she, her, her parents were British, she could go over to England and work while I was in school. So we went over together and um, did my one-year master's degree um, and we, we loved it in London. We ended up staying a little bit longer and working. I, I ended up working there for a little bit. And then we came back to Boston and both started, you know, kind of our careers here. Um, I started my career in energy, um, and initially in consulting. And Diana started um, originally with Lotus, but then really got into teaching and um, found her passion because she's a, an amazing uh, teacher. Uh, Regardless of what she's teaching, she taught chemistry here, she taught chemistry when we went overseas. Now she teaches plant-based nutrition. She's a a great teacher. So um, when I was working in the consulting world here in Boston, um, they asked me whether I wanted to move to to Singapore and um, manage the energy consulting practice in Asia. And so we went out, we had a look around, said, okay, this could be fun. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's, you know, and they said, you just need to go for two years. Don't worry. Well, you can come back after two years. Like, okay, two years in Asia, we'll do that. Um, Of course, two years turned into four years. And then, you know, we, we switched, I switched jobs and came another two years. So we spent four years living in Singapore, which is an amazing experience. Our our first two daughters were born in Singapore. Um, We made amazing friends. You know, everyone was sort of, raising their family and everything so it was a a great community and a really nice place to live um and then um we i ended up like switching jobs while i was in asia and we moved to hong kong and um uh spent two and a half years in hong kong uh, where our third daughter was born and then uh we ended up moving back to the u.s in 1998 so this was like from 1992 to 1998 yeah and um you know, Hong Kong was also an amazing place to live. Um, we got to see a lot of Asia, travel a lot, um, experience, you know, lots of different cultures. And, uh, and the kids also, you know, although they were pretty young, they got to travel as well. And they, they definitely yeah. have the travel bug, so yeah. um, which, which is pretty cool.
1: And why, why initially into energy? Was there always yeah. a desire to do that or did it just kind of happen?
0: I had a professor um, in my undergraduate program who really got me interested in energy and uh, ever since then, you know, like I I wanted to, you know, work and, and, and study the, the industry. I, th- I found it to be a really complex and multifaceted industry. Of course, you know, this was back in the, you know, the 80s and 90s, like the old energy industry, we would say. Yeah. Um, so oil, gas, power generation, fossil-based fuels. And um, yeah. so that, that was really like the consulting practice that I was m- managing was really... About oil and gas, and um, I think it, it was a really interesting foundation for what I'm doing now in the clean energy world, because um, have a, like a decent understanding of what you have to compete with um, relative to fossil fuels, and, um, and and what it takes to mm. you know to create a new business in in clean energy and and be able to enter that market, which is so well established, the infrastructure is so well established in in the fossil industry.
1: Yeah. So when did you? <clears throat> sort of switch over to clean and kind of like what was happening in the world that you felt it was kind of like the right time to do that
0: yeah it's um, so we ended up coming back from Hong Kong in 1998 Um, I was working here for the same company um, that I worked for in Hong Kong and around um, around 2000-2001 I was introduced to um, someone who had worked in in the Department of Energy and um, we started looking at what was happening in the renewable energy sector, you know, who who were developing wind projects, who were developing solar projects, you know, biomass-fired power generation, um, all these different technologies that were emerging. And it was really early days, not like today where, you know, it's headline news, but um, really early days, and there there was, like, not a lot of money flowing into that sector. Um, But we started looking at it, and said, well, a lot of these projects actually can make money, um, and they're like really good developers out there who know how to do community relations and know how to site projects and are technically very savvy. But you know, where are they going to find the money to fund their projects? And, and so we started looking at this. We said we ought to form like almost akin to a private equity fund, and start um, you know providing equity to good developers out there. Who have uh, interesting projects, and so we we did that. There were three of us, um, and um, we raised uh, raised some money, a small amount of money for the size of the opportunity, and we started investing in in clean energy projects, whether they were power generation or biofuels, <clears throat> and ultimately we we built up um, a, a reasonable size portfolio, and then sold. A significant part of the portfolio to an oil company of all things wow um, uh-huh. so so that that was sort of my entree into clean energy and I, I really wanted to do it because I saw it, the trend even back then it, it appeared that you know if these projects started are starting to make economic sense they're going to be more of them there 's going to be more money flowing into the sector and that 's exactly what happened from the time we started this in kind of two thousand and two two thousand and three to when we sold the first part of the portfolio in 2006, there was a mad rush of, of, of mm. capital into the sector. And that was, of course, a very good thing. Yeah. Um, and so my transition was really more from you know, funding projects to be more on the technology side. By 2006, I really wanted to more on technology commercialization and less on just like replicating the financing of projects. There's plenty of money to fund projects. There was not a lot of money to fund technologies to get them out of labs at MIT or Harvard Mm. or BU, Um, and we really wanted to figure out how we could do that because that was a real constraint in the sector.
1: Yeah, so to somebody with a very elementary understanding of, of the term clean energy, Can you sort of like break down what goes into it? Like my thought is solar, wind, electric cars, like that's kind of how I see it and probably the average person does. So can you kind of like break down the different areas of it and what you actually mean when you say clean energy?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So we we start out with the premise that, you know, to be clean energy, it really has to be more resource efficient. So, um, you know, that's reducing the amount of energy in for the amount of benefit you get out, whether that's electricity or something else. Um, and and then what, what we tend to do is layer on top of that, and, and this is a more recent trend, um, a criteria that relates to greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Mm-hmm. So when we look at technologies today, we want to see a material impact in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That could be a primary impact, like simply um, reducing um, stack gases from a power plant. Um, so you're, you're taking the CO2 out of the air and yeah. you're reducing uh, greenhouse gases that way. Or it can be a secondary impact, like uh, reducing the cost of solar so there's widespread adoption, higher, higher adoption rates. Um, <clears throat> so, or I- increasing the functionality of solar through control systems, power electronics, and things like that. So there are lots of different ways you can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, some are primary ways, um, just exactly you know, taking greenhouse gas out of, out of the atmosphere. Others are just enablers to um, installing zero carbon emission electricity sources or fuel sources. Mm-hmm. So that's how we think about, um, and then to your point about subsectors. So really pretty broad in, in how we look at it, it used to be called like clean tech, um, cl- clean energy, but people are starting to use the, the term climate tech now instead mm. of clean tech, which is kind of an interesting um, kind of uh, emerging trend. Yeah. And so we look at, at things like um, storage, uh, energy storage, because that's really important for the ability to install more solar and wind, which are intermittent sources of power. We need, to s- we need to use storage to firm them up so you can really have that power at any time you need it. Um, we look at mobility, so transportation, whether that's engine technologies or shared economy type transportation, which ultimately can reduce the amount of, um, of uh, you know, internal combustion engines we have on the road, especially if we're using like electric vehicles or electric scooters for shared mobility. Um, we look at um, things like, um, you know, again, like power electronics, um, inverters, you know, all the stuff that's kind of behind the system that helps utilities manage the grid better but also allows Mm. greater installation of of distributed solar resources, uh, typically on on residential or commercial buildings. So that's a big area of focus. Um, And then we we also look at things like new materials. So, um, for example, we have a company that strengthens uh, carbon fiber composite materials. And what's important about that is if you strengthen them, then you don't need as much uh, weight in that carbon fiber, and therefore you can lightweight things like airplanes, automotive, Mm -hmm. other equipment. And uh, by lightweighting, you're improving the fuel efficiency rather dramatically. Mm -hmm. So um, those are kind of a couple uh, examples of of subsectors we we look at. And, of course, we look at renewables too. So anything you can do to make solar more efficient – higher higher efficiency panels, um, uh, You know, lower cost uh, is, is really important. And the same goes for wind and other renewable zero carbon sources of energy. Yeah.
1: And what are you <coughs> most excited about? Is there a technology or a trend or something that you're kind of most excited about seeing happen or?
0: I mean, there are a couple areas where I think we're really excited. Uh, first of all, Storage gets a lot of attention, um, probably has the most articles written in the mainstream media. Um, And I I think it is important because if we're going to move to zero carbon sources of electricity that are intermittent, we're going to need a lot of storage. And and today's storage, uh, whether it's electrochemical storage like lithium ion batteries or um, grid scale storage that could be in other forms. um, And when
1: you say storage, you mean like physical plants? Yeah, yeah, plants that yeah.
0: store electricity yeah. um, and allow you to dispatch it whenever you want. Right. Um, right, So really like just batteries that we use in our phones or computers or anything else like that mm-hmm. at much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes for electric vehicles as well. So so storage is, is I think, a really, really important emerging trend. Um, and we, we think about it less in, in terms of which electrochemical technology um, is going to win but how is more about how is storage going to get adopted and um, integrated into you know the system, the electrical system, and so things like electric vehicles are really interesting because they're basically storage units. Um, everyone who has an electric vehicle has uh, you know a massive amount of storage sitting in their garage. And electric vehicles or any vehicles are really only used like five or ten percent of of the day. So if you think about um, discharging that battery from the electric vehicle into your house when you actually need um, power because your solar array on your roof is not operating, yeah. it's, a, it's a great opportunity. And so we're looking at, at things that might help integrate um, electric vehicles as they grow in use um, into the overall storage system. And we think that's a, a, r- a really interesting trend. Of course, there's going to be it's other types cool, yeah. of storage as well at the grid scale. Mm. Um, but we think at a distributed level uh, for people to be able to use their cars and maybe get paid for that storage will be uh, really interesting.
1: Very cool. What do you think the biggest inhibitor to widespread adoption is, right? I mean, electric cars have been around however many years now, right? Um, I I recently had a conversation with a a friend of mine whose family owns uh, Chevy dealerships. And he's just like, people just don't want electric vehicles. And they're looking at it very much from a business number standpoint. And he just doesn't see the average typical Chevy buyer wanting an electrical uh, electric vehicle. And they see that kind of daily. So like, what do you think like the big, maybe electric vehicles is a good uh, place to start? What's like preventing people from adopting this and in adopting solar panels on their homes and businesses pointing on on the roof and things like that.
0: Yeah. I think electric vehicles is a great place to start. Um, So for the Chevy dealer, it's Mm. a really challenging thing because most uh, car dealers make their money on service um, and parts. Yeah. And electric vehicles don't need a lot of service. Right. I've had an electric vehicle for two years and it has not needed one service.
1: Yeah. Tesla. Yeah.
0: Yep. So it's fantastic that it can be, you know, significantly lower maintenance cost, but the economic proposition for a Chevy dealer just isn't there. Yeah. Um, so they, we need to figure out other modes of, uh, you, know, you know, other means by which a Chevy dealer is going to make a margin on the car mm-hmm. over the life of ownership. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, kind of trying, people are trying to figure that out now. And um, from
1: like the the actual consumer, like I want an electric car, yeah. But I'm, I, th- I think we are probably in the two to five percent of people that actually right. care and want one. Like what do you think it's just an education thing for people? or
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a natural uh, reluctancy because of range anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, know, we don't have the infrastructure fully built out yet uh, to allow people to go wherever they want and be assured that there will be charging, fast charging. Um, fast charging is a big issue because I think most people don't want to sit around for you know an hour. They want to stop to, at a rest stop so and wait you know, an hour. Yeah, right. wait an hour. So we need to address the charging time. We need to address the number of charging stations we have on the roads, although that's rapidly getting deployed. Part of the um, Volkswagen emissions uh, settlement um, is, is actually funding a lot of the, the charging infrastructure that's being built out now in the U.S. Mm. So that's, that's kind of a really kind of interesting um, pot of money that's being used. Um, but, but I think the perception, forget about reality, the perception is we don't have enough charging stations, the range isn't long enough, um, yeah. and you know, um, I, I, I therefore don't want to take the risk of buying a 100% electric vehicle, People are kind of dabbling in it through um hybrid electric yeah. gasoline um like the Bolt and other cars but um still not uh we haven't seen 100% electric vehicles take off yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anything else in the energy space you want to you want to touch on?
0: Um yeah, there's so, so many areas. Um, we're really excited about things like engine technologies because um, one of the hardest areas to decarbonize is transportation fuels, um, like we were just talking about. We're mm-hmm. not, it's going to take a while to get everyone to go electric. And by the way, if everyone does go electric, our grid is not 100% zero carbon anyway. Mm-hmm. So we're really transferring um, emissions from fossil fuels to fossil-based power generation. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So until we we actually make the grid 100% renewable, um, going electric doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It's certainly an improvement, but it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. And so,
1: on, on the sorry to yeah. on the grid side, is there? What's kind of the bottleneck there in terms of getting a totally electric grid?
0: Well, part of it is this intermittency issue. Um, electric utilities are all about reliability, redundancy, um, resiliency. And so when you start having wind projects and uh, grid-scale solar, um, it, it's, a, it's just a new model for them. And the existing transmission grid is not set up for distributed uh, solar solar projects. And so it's just going to take another a different mindset. Um, They are moving in that direction and regulators are pushing them in that direction because the thing that most people don't understand is that wind and solar are are lower cost than many fossil forms of of power generation today. So it it economically makes sense for utilities to buy uh, renewables. But um, it's all about can the system absorb it And is there enough storage to back it up? Um, And are they ready for it? So it's going to take time. They certainly are moving in that direction. In New England, we have um, one of the most progressive solar development programs, uh, both grid scale and distributed uh, on houses. But we also have a massive amount of offshore wind in development. And that's really exciting for this region because we're going to lead the country in offshore Mm. wind. We're going to have multiple thousands of megawatts. Of offshore wind operating at pretty high utilization rates, so they'll have you know um, they'll produce like 40 to 50 percent of over the course of a year, um, which is a lot for wind. And we're drawing on the experience of the Europeans, of um, uh, the Scandinavian companies, and the um, <coughs> Dutch and, and and German companies who have been pioneers in offshore wind. So this is going to be the epicenter of offshore wind, and that's that's really exciting for New England.
1: Very cool. And what do you say to somebody that's just like does not buy into any of this? Why change what what's quote unquote working?
0: Yeah. Well, it, it really isn't working when you think about the fact that our power generation system is emitting an enormous amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that's something that we cannot tolerate um, any longer. Um, we... You know, I, I think, you know, most people recognize now that um, we are in a crisis state mm. in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be extremely difficult to get to 1.5 degrees um, mm-hmm. by even 2100. And so we need to be doing everything we possibly can, whether it's transportation, electricity. Um, how we eat, I think we'll come on and talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that, um, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, our footprint. And so we need to do it urgently, um, and um, we need to you know, double, triple, quadruple our efforts in this in a very short period of time. Otherwise, um, our, our focus is going to need to be on resiliency, building seawalls and protecting our coastal cities from flooding, which is going to happen, uh, more frequently. It already is happening more frequently.
1: Yeah. And I asked this, uh, on our run, um, how is sort of the, the current administration and, um, kind of, uh, Trump's sort of (coughs) anti, uh, you just called it a crisis, right? Like his, his, uh, inability to accept that we are in crisis, um, and sort of the all, all the things he's done while in office, have we taken a step back or, you know, what's been kind of the impact of, of his presidency in your eyes?
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say we've taken a massive step back um, just by pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord um, and, uh, you know, really taking the EPA in a direction that is weakening many of our environmental laws um, which, by the way, you know, protect our water supplies for um, you know everyday people <coughs> in red and blue states, um, and and you know uh, protect our air, uh, protect our land. Um, so I, I find it somewhat perplexing that a lot of the weakening of environmental regulations um, is hurting, maybe hurting even more voters in, in states that supported Trump. Um, but, but more generally, I think um, the lack of focus by the federal government on the climate crisis is, is a disaster. And um, the only positive thing that's come out of that is we are seeing states take um, more unilateral action on their own to um, strengthen uh, their focus on, on climate mitigation <clears throat> and and um, bring more <clears throat> renewable energy into their systems, um, and states luckily have control over that because um, the electricity system in each state is governed by the state public utilities commission, and so <clears throat> the, the the power of the states is pretty significant in terms of managing their electricity grid, and so we're seeing states, we're seeing regions like the Northeast and Mid Atlantic group together and really take action. Not only on greenhouse gas emissions for the electricity system, but now uh, for transportation as well, mm-hmm. as the next area to focus on decarbonizing. We've brought carbon emissions down very significantly in the Northeast um, in the electricity system. And so that needs to be replicated in, in transportation. Um, so that's that's a huge trend that's sort of offsetting some of the negative um, activity in the federal government. And then the other side of it is the private sector. And we were talking on the run about Amazon's announcement um, that uh, they're going to be um, carbon neutral uh, 10 years in advance of the uh, the Paris Climate Accord and Jeff Bezos, you know, contributing $10 billion of his own money toward um, climate change initiatives. So, um, you know, between Bezos and... Bloomberg and, and Bill Gates uh, and, and many other you know super wealthy uh, folks, we're seeing a lot of commitment toward um, investing in um, in climate tech, let's call it, and then also supporting from a, a political standpoint a move toward um, uh, policy that is uh, favorable for addressing climate change.
1: Mm. So from a individual perspective, the average person listening what can you know me or you do every day to kind of you know do our part and you mentioned diet um so maybe talk a little bit about what you mean with diet and then also (coughs) um also other things like electric cars and solar panels in the homes and what can like if you were doing everything perfect as you know the average Bostonian what would that kind of look like
0: I'd really like to ride my bike every day, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that might just be me. Um, yeah, I think what we eat is a critically important thing. And, and interestingly, um, it's, it's a little disappointing to me at times that the environmental community, of which I'm a, a big part of, Right does not focus on our food choices as one of the major areas where we can address uh, the environment. Um, You're getting together for
1: barbecues, but talking about clean energy, right? Right, (laughs) right. I go to a lot of luncheons where
0: they serve meat, salmon, chicken, and I'm thinking, wait, we're talking about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but look what we're eating at this lunch. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm never shy about speaking up, so um, I've tried to correct some of those situations. But, you know, I, I think what we, we eat, what we eat is, can and, and does have a, a massive impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And, and also I think the packaging we're using for food mm. and other materials Um, much of which comes from oil, you know, polypropylene, polyethylene, um, is something that we really need to start regulating because if you go to Germany, if you go to Switzerland, if you go to the Netherlands, they have really strict requirements about fiber-based packaging. And we're still using, (coughs) you know, huge plastic containers for a little Mm. bit of lettuce. And Mm. um, things like that can have a really big impact when you think about the scale of that industry. But um, one of the things that's been really encouraging to me over the past five years is just seeing the adoption um, in in supermarkets and and food outlets of plant-based products. And so, you know, I look back when I first became plant-based, you know, the the milk shelf was 90% um, cow-based milk, um, 10%, you know, alternative milks. And now... I, I swear it's about 50-50. Op- yeah, it's almost we the have opposite. cow-based milk. We have oat, hemp, almond, coconut, you know, name your cashew, name your nut, and blends of all of them. And um, and that just doesn't happen because someone's going into the store and saying, I've got this new milk. Do you want to try it out? It's because customers are asking for these alternatives. And so um, that that is an amazing trend. Likewise, cheese, Obviously, most people have heard of, you know, Beyond and, and Impossible and Dunkin' Donuts, you know, is has a breakfast sandwich. Yeah, with, that's that's uh, wild. Who, if who, Dunkin' Donuts is doing it. Yeah, who who would have thought it's that mainstream, Dunkin' Donuts yeah. and, and has an amazing plant-based ad as well. So, you know, it, it brings a smile to my face to really see the adoption rates um, in supermarkets, food outlets. And then when you go to restaurants that may not be, Plant-based, but um, and you ask for something plant-based, um, uh, I'm I'm shocked at how many restaurants now have um, have plant-based stuff on the menu, or have a chef that's just willing to make you something that's plant-based. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about like high-end restaurants; I'm just talking about um, your average um, place you go out to eat. So, uh, I think that trend is really really encouraging, and um, food tech now is a whole another venture industry and uh, with billions of dollars of capital flowing into it and you have companies like Tyson Ventures investing in non-meat protein and so that says it all right there because they're obviously seeing a trend that eventually um, their meat products are going to get displaced by non-meat pro- by plant-based protein and so they want they want a hedge they want a piece of that action uh, they want to be in that market and I think that's a really positive trend
1: yeah, and it's, it's more cost-effective for them, too. Right. You have to raise an animal for years and then kill the animal. I mean, it's just right. Right. the obvious play from a business standpoint, too, if the consumer is willing to adopt it. Right. It's yeah. better for
0: the animals. It's better for the planet. And you, they can make money from mm-hmm. it, which is obviously important for their shareholders.
1: Yeah. And probably better for the consumer.
0: Yep. <laughs> better for <laughs> <Yeah>. our health.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so food, electric vehicle... Um, solar panels in the house, um, anything else that would kind of fall under? Obviously, recycling and um, trying not to buy plastic and and things like that. Outside of those, from an individual standpoint, am I missing anything that people should be aware of?
0: Well, I think um, there's a lot of things we can do in our home um, to just lower our carbon footprint. Putting solar on your roof, if you have a roof that's compatible, is a pretty easy and cost effective thing to do. Um, if you don't have a roof that's compatible, there's a new thing called community solar. You can simply contract for a certain portion of your electricity to come from solar, and, and typically it's about you know, five or 10% less than the cost of um, your your current electricity bill. So they are easy options in many states, 30, 30, 30 some odd states, and, for consumers to access solar power.
1: And what does that look like? Somebody comes out, adds a s- extra line to your, like, what does that, what does that look no, like?
0: No, nothing like that. It's all, like, uh, financial. So okay. you, don't, you don't actually, the electrons are ubiquitous. Yeah. And so um, you just have a contract with that solar farm, that you get a portion of their output, they supply okay. it into the grid, yeah. and you have a bilateral contract, and and your electricity bill gets adjusted.
1: Gotcha. Interesting. That was community solar. Community solar. Yeah. yeah there are lots Very of cool.
0: community solar providers out there in places like Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, California, and other states. So it's it's a it's a really interesting way to bring solar to you know multifamily, um, to cities, uh, and and to homes that don't have. A roof that fits.
1: Mm, Yeah, I love it. Um, Well, I'd love to pivot back to uh, back to um, (laughs) athletics a bit here. So you plant based about six years ago, and you hadn't. When did you first start like running seriously?
0: Well, I first started. I I was like a casual runner, occasional five k, occasional ten k, not particularly fast, and not like a regular uh, person who exercised yeah, uh, played a little bit of tennis. And then about 10 years ago um, someone asked whether I wanted to join the pan mass challenge and ride 180 miles um, to Provincetown. I was like, I don't think I can ride 10 miles to Weston. Yeah, yeah. um, how am I ever going to do that? <laughs> yeah. So they lent me a bike and uh, I, I started training and, you know, I did 10 miles and I made it, and I did 20 miles and I did 30. So, you know, I, I gradually started really enjoying riding longer distances. I did the pan Challenge that year and I did it nine subsequent years. And um, uh, about a year later, I started bike racing. And I just really fell in love with, um, you know, being able to compete um, and then also ride my bike. Mm. Um, so I really came to endurance through bike racing Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, it's, it's kind of a wild sport because, uh, road racing, which is not very popular these days among, you know, average athletes like me, um, is, uh, is tough. I mean, you either stay in the Peloton or you get dropped. And so it's not, not really that enticing a sport for many, but, it is a really interesting sport, and I, I love it. And um, so I started doing that, and I transitioned from bike racing, which I still do, to triathlon and running. I mean, I had to start running if I was going to do triathlon. <laughs> yeah. so I had to year, learn to swim. How
1: many years ago was that?
0: That was about seven years ago.
1: Okay. So talk to me, talk to me about learning to swim, because that is my crux. So I'm selfishly asking did you find somebody to teach you proper form and all that stuff and what did sort of like your initiation into it look like?
0: Kim Fox, are you out there?
1: Kim Fox. All right. She's my swim coach. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, so yeah, I, I, swam a little bit when I was a kid, but really yeah. had no idea how to swim well. Yeah. And the, part of it is, I mean, most people can figure out how to swim freestyle, but it's really about learning how to be an efficient swimmer because you want to use as little energy to mm-hmm. propel yourself forward as you possibly can. And so for me, it, it was it's just about, like, getting a stroke more perfect uh, um, or even average. Um, yeah to uh, be able to be an efficient swimmer. And also there's an adjustment to being sw- swimming in open water, um, you know, getting hit by other swimmers. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just a little bit of an un- uncomfortable thing that you have to kind of get used to. So I did swim coaching um, in a pool, and that was extremely helpful, like video sessions, um, and just uh, got my stroke to a point where it's okay. Yeah, um, definitely not going to... Um, win any swim competitions, (laughs) but I can get through, you know, a mile or two mile swim and, um, feel comfortable about it uh, either in a wetsuit or not in a (laughs) wetsuit.
1: So you went from (coughs) six, seven years ago, starting triathlons to 2016 was you did an Ironman. Is that right?
0: I did an Ironman. That's pretty fast. 2016. Yeah. 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 Um, I was about four, yeah, three or four years in, yeah. And, um, I, I really liked the half Ironman distance because, you know, for me, the biking part of it is my strongest leg. And so anything where the bike is a large proportion of the overall race, mm-hmm. it's, it's better. And so, in you know, as you get higher up in distances, um, you get the, the bike leg is longer. And so, um, you know, I would like survive the 1.2 mile swim of a half and then, um, and then uh, a 56-mile uh, bike, 58-mile bike, um, and then uh, and then a half mar- marathon, which was manageable. So, yeah. but I, I wasn't really a great runner, and only in the last kind of uh, 18 months have I started you know running much more actively, and mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. So to to the average person who you know, January 1 is putting a uh, first triathlon on their, you know, uh, yearly goals list. What advice do you have to somebody? I mean, you only started six, <coughs> six seven years ago, and now you've done an Ironman. The, the halves, you, you qualified for nationals in your age group, is that right?
0: I qualified for um, nationals at Olympic and sprint and worlds for half.
1: In Worlds, in half, is that, where's that done?
0: Well, it was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the year I did it. Yeah. And it was in Switzerland last year. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it was a great experience.
1: That's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, I loved it. How old are you? I'm 55.
1: 55, wow. So, yeah, that's a short period of time to qualify for Worlds. Coming from, like most of the guys that I see that do real well and try, were like college swimmers, and then they tack on, you know, college swimmer slash maybe a high school cross-country guy and then they learn how to bike and then it's just like a deadly combo and those are the guys that you know they're running ridiculous marathon times and the swim is a breeze to them and then they just kind of gut out the bike right those are like the the guys that seem to own triathlon but coming from somebody who didn't really run who had to learn to swim in six years to then be at a world level that's pretty wild
0: yeah, I was. It was like I said, it was a great experience. You know, I'm, I'm not saying like I finished in the top fifty. At worlds, yeah, but it does I, I, I got there, yeah. um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and you know, like yeah, the running part of it is something. I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Hopefully, the running now will allow me to improve. But it comes with a lot of indoor training as we have to do in New England. Um, mm. And so, just kind of getting on your bike trainer for a few hours on the weekend and. Um, kind of toughing out, uh, the, the boredom of, of that, um, is really important. And then just, you know, like we did this morning, getting out in the cold weather and running, um, uh, mm. which is really enjoyable, especially when you have someone to run with. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was saying that it does go by faster.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does go by
1: faster. So one pointer, other than just kind of like putting in the time to somebody that wants to start, like yeah. what, what advice would you give somebody? I think
0: triathlon unlike bike racing is a really democratic sport so you can be at any level mm. and you can join a sprint uh, an Olympic or a half and and you know you can do whatever pace you want and and just finish and, and that's a, a great thing um, and I, I think that's what one of the beauties of the sport is it, it you know it allows anyone to participate and there's a really wide range of people participating um, so but I, I think it is useful to get a coach maybe and do some training um, uh, so that you feel confident and comfortable um, getting in the water with a lot of other people at the same time and, and being on the bike in a kind of uncomfortable position for a while and um, kind of hammering out those Watts and then, um, you know, getting off and and being able to transition to a run. So I, I, I love seeing, you know, first time triathletes um, at races and, Diana, you know, just started in the last two years doing triathlon and she's really enjoying it, um, Mm. and improving. So it's great to see it.
1: Yeah. And on the, on the diet front. So we just, (coughs) this past week, we're at a game changers event with all those guys and Scott Jurek we were talking to. And, uh, do you view your diet as an advantage?
0: I definitely view it as an advantage. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because I was listening to um, some folks asking Scott what he eats before, you know, a training workout and everything. I'm like, that's exactly what I eat, too. You know, uh, cold oats or, you know, uh, (laughs) banana and almond butter or, you know, whatever. Um, And I was thinking, good. I think I'm on the right track if I'm Mm. doing the same thing as Scott Jurek, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, I think the nutrition part of it is absolutely critical um, just in daily life, but then, you know, how you fuel your body during, uh, before, during, and after workouts is, is, is really important, and um, it's something like I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I definitely don't have it dialed in perfectly yet, but um, I'm, I'm learning, and I tend to under nourish myself when I'm working out. So, um, I've, you know, I've had a lot of deficit situations in races, Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, you know, you learn from, but I I think the plant-based nutrition has really, really helped me in, in my, um, in my training
1: and overall health as a 55 year old guy. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No complaints.
1: (laughs) (laughs) um entrepreneur question here (laughs) so you obviously deal with a lot of entrepreneurs and you advise and help companies startups in the clean energy space as somebody on the other side of the table um that is writing the check right what advice do you have to um an entrepreneur that's kind of pitching what they're doing what do you look for
0: yeah um so We look for entrepreneurs who are really willing to learn and on a learning journey. Um, I think, if you know, entrepreneurs who have all the answers probably aren't a good fit for us. Mm. Um, We're really big into leadership examination, leadership training. Um, We do it ourselves. So we have a leadership coach that works with us as a venture team. And we also want to see our companies... Embrace, um, you know, improvement uh, in in their in their leadership style and in their culture. So that's probably the most important thing for entrepreneurs that um, that we would want to see. It, it, we we like to say that you know the technology may be okay, but if the entrepreneurs are great the chances of success are really much higher than if you have a great technology and mediocre entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's, it's just critically important that um, you be on that learning journey and have that kind of positive mental attitude going in. There are absolutely, without doubt, going to be roadblocks road and, mm-hmm. and speed bumps and everything and, and lots of pivots and transitions, things you're gonna have to overcome. And so, you know, having a a good, good attitude about it is, um, you know, we, we think that's critical for success.
1: Yeah. I like that. That's great. Um, yeah, somebody once told me, ask for advice, you'll get money, ask for money, you'll get advice. Right. Right. That's (laughs) great. I love that. And that's kind of remember uh, that (laughs) it's always stuck with (laughs) me, uh, since I heard it. Uh, what's one thing we're, we're winding up on an hour here, but, um, what's the, uh, one thing about you that we haven't talked about that, that you might like to share? Could be anything.
0: Hmm. Well, we talked a little bit about travel, but um, I, I love, uh, I love traveling. I love traveling with my family. We've done some great vacations, um, just going to see different cultures. And one of the best things is is going out and, and running in, in, in different places around mm-hmm. the world. Um, you just learn so much about, um, a culture, a city, you just really, really see it, um, and feel it, um, when you can get out on the streets. So, you know, I, one of the things as I get older, I want to do is see more of the world, experience mm. more of the people in the world. Um, there are a lot of good people out there and, um, we, we tend to lose sight of, uh, the predicament of a lot of the, the world. Um, you know, what's happening in hot spots around the world what's happening in low income areas of the world. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really committed to one seeing it and helping wherever I can. Um, so that's, that's definitely something I love and I think my family has really embraced it too. And it's super fun to travel with them.
1: Mm. What would you say your biggest lesson from, Living in different parts of the world and seeing a lot of the world has been
0: um, that. Well, I, I think there. Are, you know, when I when we moved to Asia and, and early in my career, one of my objectives from what I studied in college was um, economic development, right? So I saw the energy industry as a way to bring economic development to you know a lot of emerging economies, and so what. Um, what I love to see when I go places is, is, you know, how those economies have changed over the years. Um, Have are people in those economies kind of living a better lifestyle than they were 20, 30 years ago? And if so, like, what, what has driven that, you know? Um, And how can we do that, you know, obviously, from what I'm doing now, how can we do that in a more sustainable fashion? If we have to transition the billion people in Africa and Asia who don't have any electricity um, to fossil-based electricity, I think we have a really big problem in the world. But if we can figure out ways to transition them to zero-carbon electricity, then that's that's going to be game-changing for um, our ability to meet climate change goals in the future. And so I I'd love to see you know kind of how those economies are are trying to make that transition there's a lot of interest in that and just trying to figure out is is the challenge
1: Mm. beautiful our last one here something that currently scares you
0: um well i was not planning to run this fast this morning (laughs) and so running again (laughs) with you kind of scares me because i was a little bit faster than i wanted to go (laughs) Um I'm just I'm I'm thankful that I was uh able to keep up with you this morning. Um uh, so I'm scared to run with you again. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. We'll,
1: we'll leave it at that. Um so where can uh where can people follow Clean Energy Ventures? Where can they follow you? Uh probably on Strava too. Uh where can people kind of kind of follow you?
0: Yeah, so we have a website cleanenergyventures.com. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. Um, we're on Facebook, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty active in the clean energy community here. We are very supportive of, of things like Greentown Labs, which is 105 um, early-stage techn- clean energy technology companies. We're very active with the Northeast Clean Energy Council. Um, I'm on the board and, um, you know, generally, in addition to just investing in clean energy companies, we really are trying to help grow this ecosystem um, because, you know, we want the Northeast to be sort of a model for the rest of the country. And, um, you know, we've created tens of thousands of clean energy jobs in New England, in the uh, and especially in Massachusetts, over the last decade. And we, we want to, you know, double or triple that in, in the coming decade. So, um, you know, that's... Uh, you know, that's, that's where you can follow me. And those are sort of some of our, our big goals.
1: Beautiful. Well, before we sign off, just want to thank you for doing this and thank you for all you're doing in the clean energy space. And thank you for supporting me and what I'm doing and being somebody I can call or email with, with questions. And you've been super helpful to me. Um, Thank you. And I just thank you for, for all you're doing. And and you're an inspiration. Uh, I hope at 55, I'm running with a 30-year-old <laughs> <laughs> to, to Castle Island and back. Um, so uh, I salute you. You're both an uh, inspiration on the uh, athletic side um, and also on the <clears throat> on the impact uh, business side as well. So well, thank thanks, you.
0: Thanks, Pat. And I love what you're doing, and I can't wait to see the outcome soon.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Times
0: It is your currency.